Are you looking to modernize your veterinary practice by offering virtual care to pet owners? Fortunately, there's an easy solution from the podcast sponsor, Medici. That's M-E-D-I-C-I. Medici is a telehealth solution built for veterinarians. I've made it easy to check out Medici with a link in the show notes, or you can head over to their website, medici.md, or call 512-967-6454 to learn more. Medici lets you text, call, and video chat with clients with their easy-to-use app. Send or receive images and videos of pets, stay VCPR compliant, and get paid, which is always a wonderful thing, for delivering convenient care right from your phone. Hi, this is Dr. Aaron Smiley, and I've offered telemedicine to my clients since I started. In 2017, I integrated paid telemedicine with Medici. Ready to go virtual? Visit Medici.md, that's M-E-D-I-C-I dot M-D, or call 512-967-6454 to learn more. And with that, here's the show. Welcome to the Veterinary Success Podcast. I'm your host, Isaiah Douglas. Today, I'm joined by Andrew Rotz. Director of Personal Finance and Financial Literacy at NC State College of Veterinary Medicine. Andrew, thank you so much for joining me. Thank you very much for having me. I'm excited to be here. With that intro, we'll talk on the financial side and I want to we get there. But one thing that that I appreciate first and foremost is your service. And you've been in the U.S. Navy Reserves for eight years. What do you think is the most important lesson that you've learned um, through that experience? I'd say, so the Navy Reserves is is not necessarily you know, an isolated thing, right? Because it's, you're balancing that with your civilian career. So uh, I, I feel like my perspective is really just to, to concentrate on balance in life. That's kind of probably my takeaway. You know, people will talk about uh, the different things that they've done and I've done some really cool stuff, but, but really it's just been trying to balance, you know, civilian life, military life, family. Um, and, and that's, that's, a continuing challenge, but uh, uh, continuously rewarding as well. Is there any, you know, correlation between again what you've learned there and like personal finance, or anything that you're like, you know, this from some of the things that you've learned through the military and personal finance, or do you say it still is all about that balance? I was thinking about this um, last night in preparation for for this podcast, and and so kind of what I boil, I think my personal uh, mantra down to is family, country, community, and being able to focus on on those three things and do those th- three things really well. That's kind of why I gravitated to, you know, federal service via the military and now, you know, state level service or, or even, you know, university service um, on the community level. I think that's, that's a huge similarity is just trying to think a little bit outside of yourself and like, what can you bring to the table? What can you do that potentially other people really can't or don't want to? Yeah, that makes a ton of sense. And yeah, before we clicked record, we talked a lot about, you know, the, the various different stages of your life and balance and, and taking care of yourself. And so I think, you know, that theme certainly runs through all the different areas that, that you work in and also the relationships and the, the family life that you live. We'll transition a little bit more towards the work that you're doing at NC State. You see hundreds of future veterinarians each and every year. When you think about the financial or, or non-financial questions that you hear the most, what typically boils to the surface? As you know, listening to, to or you know, uh, your podcast with Travis Hornsby, the student loan planner, um, I like his term, right? This elephant in the room. Uh, he said that several times on, his pod, on your podcast. 
Um, and, and the elephant in the room is student loans, right? Everyone is concerned about that. That's what's on the news. That's one, what's on headlines. And so, you know, understandably, there's that's that's a huge driver for students to come see me. But what I really try to stress is it's not just about the student loans. That's one piece of your financial situation. We also need to be talking about budgeting and retirement planning and insurance coverage and, and all of these these very important concepts that they're not most students, uh, regardless of industry, uh, when they when they arrive in the industry, they're they're woefully and inadequately prepared for those pieces of the puzzle. And so what I'm trying to do is bring more of a holistic approach beyond the student loan situation, which is the most common question. But with uh, as the increase in scholarships that we've seen, you know, the increase of family support that we've seen, as well as, you know, second career folks who are coming in uh, to vet school, at least NC State, with, you know, some sort of savings already or GI Bill, things like that. It, you know, there, there is a need to talk about some of this other stuff. And, and so that's why I'm glad I'm here because, you know, there's absolutely a thirst for it. Yeah. And I want to talk about some of the other topics. And again, I know that's such a leading question because I felt like I knew where the answer would be, which is student loans, because that seems to be a lot of the, the questions and concerns that I get. But to your point, there's a lot of other things outside of that. And yes, it is important. And, and I've said that I feel like, you know, understanding student loans and planning for that is a lot of the, the big decisions, especially from a personal side early on uh, as they graduate. But do you hear, and this is something that I continue to hear, and some people have challenged me on it. What do you hear from a desire to own and be, you know, an owner in a private practice? Do you hear uh, students say they want that? Do they say, I have too much student loan debt. There's no way I can do that. Any thoughts or any conversations that you have around that as well? Yeah, yeah. So, so I definitely see folks that want to be practice owners. I see plenty that don't. Right? They they see practice owners. They see the stress levels. They see the the suicide levels in the in the industry. And a lot of that is attributed to poor time management or just you know there's a lot of stress and there's there's long hours and there's a lot of potentially travel on the road and. They don't necessarily want that for themselves. They want work-life balance. They want um, some semblance of well balance, right? It seems to be a key word here. And so you got some that do want to be practice owners, but they probably want to do it differently than the practice that they than the owner that they'd be buying from, right? They they want to approach it from a holistic wellness perspective. They want to you know run things their way. And so yes, when we have talk conversations about student loans that that's sometimes a hurdle right is is trying to figure out how do i pay off my student loans but also you know take on this very large business debt and so you know we're we're tackling multiple concepts at once but i i'd say it's a mixed bag you know plenty don't want to be practice owners because they see it as uh too much stress too much uh to chew to bite off and chew. And then others are absolutely gung-ho about it because they want to be that positive change in the industry. And it's hard, you know, being in school and knowing exactly what you want to do when you get out because no one has worked as an, an associate veterinarian up to this point and, and put in the, the long hours that they will have to do even as a non-owner. And one of the things, so we initially met um, through Dan Routh, um, kind of a, I think he had mentioned your name once or twice. Then we met at the AVMA Economic Summit. One of the interesting stats at the summit 
was on the mental well-being or happiness or satisfaction level from associates to owners. And I don't know if you recall that dialogue, but one of the pieces of that presentation was on average, and again, averages can be dangerous, owners typically are more satisfied, have all these different things that are statistically significant for kind of that mental wellness health. And, and yeah, it's stressful. It's always going to be stressful regardless of whether someone's an associate or an owner. But yeah, if there's, I think what I continue to hear from some within the industry is, Hey, I have a lot of student loan debt. There's no way I can ever become an owner. And it's like, well, wait, time out. Let's actually unpack that a little bit and see if you truly want it. There are ways to still go about that, even with a significant student loan burden. Yeah, absolutely. It's, Yes, practice owners are typically significantly better off um, from a financial standpoint. They obviously get to run the show in terms of the hours that they work, the cases that they take, um, if they're a specialty practice or you know whatever. So there's a lot more control, but the, there's a huge difference. I, th- I think it's it's challenging to look at today's practice owners versus today's associate vets because they're in such a dynamically different place in life, right? Um, if you look at you know just the general trends with the millennial generation, of which I am one, in terms of home ownership and starting a family and starting a career, and when they're actually able to like leave their parents' houses, that's so massively different than it was 20, 30 years ago. And that's who the practice owners are. That you know, their their tuition to get through vet school was you know, fractions of what current tuition rates are. And it's not necessarily that vet schools are purposely doing it, but, you know, um, there's a demand for an associate vet to understand how to operate an MRI machine and how to understand how a specialty hospital works. And there's a lot of things that are in the curriculum now that I'm not necessarily saying they have to be, but there's an expectation there that there wasn't 20, 30, 40 years ago. And um, I mean, that's expensive for a vet school to facilitate an MRI in the building, you know, bringing in all those technicians and the specialty staff, and then you got to service that thing. And now you've got to have a professor uh, who is adequate to be able to teach that thing, right? So, So that's part of what I think is the rising cost of tuition. And so that's just generated a drastically different landscape than modern day practice owners had to go through even 15 years ago. Yeah. And I think that's a, a well positioned statement, kind of seeing it from, from your angle, which is very different than a lot of other people that I've talked to as far as, yeah, student loans are high and, you know, colleges too, like all these different things like, well, there's, there, there can be some reasons and, and not to always vilify um, the universities. Cause I think I've been guilty of that at times. Like, Hey, just, you know, it shouldn't cost this much. You can go in and you can be more efficient and sure any organization, whether it's nonprofit or for-profit can be more efficient, but uh, that's a really good point. And right. also kind of backing up real quick, the solopreneur working, you know, 60, 70, 80 hours a week, six days a week, that lifestyle of a veterinarian is definitely changing where I view it as, you know, the ownership expectations moving in the future are different because you talked about being millennial. I am as well. Like that partnership ability to have some time off and have flexibility for family and, and all these other things is super important. And that will change the the dynamics of, of clinics and hospitals in the future. So 
yeah, I appreciate that overview. And, you know, it's important, you know, I, I think, I think NC state is doing a fantastic job. I think we collectively are leading the way in a lot of these initiatives for work-life balance and wellness, right? We've, you know, my office is right next to our clinical counselor who, you know, remains very busy dealing with the stress of not only getting into vet school, but being in vet school. And then, you know, the challenges of a clinical year and the challenges of um, the stress of going through the holidays when you're you know, taking out hundreds of thousands of dollars in debt. Um, it, my office is right across the hall from our career counselor and our employer relations counselor. So, you know, we've got, you know, an employment or not an employment. We've got a um, diversity and um, inclusion um, group here in our student services. So again, we're trying to tackle a lot of these social constructs all at once, in addition to preparing them for, you know, being at least adequate as, as a new associate um, and building that resiliency for their career. And that's not cheap, but NC State's doing it, right? The challenge is how do we get, how do we get the rest of the, the universities on board? How do we get those types of resources out there for, for um, broader consumption? And I'm not tackling that yet. <laughs> I'm still working on, on the local community first, but you know, it's, it's important to consider that these services also didn't exist 15 to 20 years ago and they cost money. So the students are paying for it via tuition, but you know, just like others that provide student loan planning services can, can tout saying, Hey, we've saved X number of hundreds of thousands of dollars in student loans. I can do that too. And the student's not paying anything. That's a good point. And I do, there, there's kind of two things I want to, I want to jump into and, and talk about. One is, so you're a certified financial planner. You've gone through, got that education and you're on staff. You're employed by the university. That's not happening all over the country. Correct. To me, that's really cool. And, and to the point you just made, there's so many different things yeah. you can talk about. And the beauty of that is your compensation and your advice is, hey, what's best for you? I'm, I'm a free resource. Come use me. I want to come see you and, and help share the knowledge and information that I have to set them up for success. And to me, there's, there's a high dollar value on that advice early on to help even prevent making those big mistakes that, that someone might make. So can you talk a little bit about the evolution of your position, why you don't maybe feel like there's CFPs at every other university around the country, why NC State felt so compelled to do that? Yeah. So, so to your point, there are, there are a handful, there's maybe three, three schools, three vet schools in, in the country that have a role similar to mine. As far as I'm aware, I'm the only CFP filling it. And I think the reason for that is it's, it's challenging to get a CFP that's at a point in their career where they're ready to you know, either give up their book of business or potentially take a pay cut or something along those lines. Cause it's, you know, it's not like academia pays amazing, but you know, especially compared to, to the industry in finance where you could be er easily earning six figures. But it was right for me because um, I was at a point, you know, where, where my wife and I, we were about to have a baby. Um, I was ready to kind of get out of the, the personal finance or the, you know, the finance industry grind of, of goal setting and the dials and the appointment numbers and all that stuff. I was ready to kind of have a little bit more work-life balance myself um, and also be willing and, and, and able to provide some of that coaching and training and, and education 
um, with from, with a personal finance lens. Um, and so this job opened up and I just happened to already be living in Raleigh. And obviously NC State is in Raleigh. So it just kind of really happened fortuitously. Um, and, you know, I was I was the the right fit for, you know, that NC State was looking for. They were looking specifically for a CFP for, you know, uh, you know, that that minimum benchmark level of education and qualifications, the fiduciary standard they were looking for. But they were also looking for someone that had industry experience and, and could kind of, you know, bring different flavors of of coaching and advice and teaching. So my role is I, I am in place in some of the business selective classes. Uh, we have a fourth year clinical conference that no matter um, what kind of rotation the fourth years are in, if they're on campus, they come to this thing every week throughout their fourth year from eight to nine a.m. on Fridays. And a lot of that could be NAVLI prep. Um, a lot of it is career counseling. And then in the spring, it'll be transitioning more into the personal finance stuff. So helping them understand, you know, disability and life insurance and liability and license defense and emergency fund. And potentially there might be a session in there about, you know, home buying and the break evens on, you know, renting versus buying and all that kind of stuff. So I I am inserted into their curriculum. uh, But the key component here, uh, and this is interesting because AAVMC released information this past year that uh, it was proven that kind of point in time, one-off sessions or seminars have been proven to be ineffective. That is an ineffective way of of creating good habits with when it comes to finances, right? And and we know that that personal finance is behavioral. It's not something that you can just learn and then you're good, right? You have to practice similar to, right, you know, surgical skills. <laughs> so the key component to my role, which I appreciate the ability to do, is, is I'm literally on site. I have an office dedicated to me, and I'm available pretty much eight to five, except for on occasion before or after hours, pending the student's schedule, to meet with them one-on-one or um, with them and their spouse or with them and their planning partner or with them and their parents. So I'm available via email, face-to-face, Skype sessions, that kind of stuff, to be able to work through their situations. And all of our students, including some of our offshore students that come to see me, um, you know, and they do their first couple of years at, at Ross or St. George, and they come to us for their fourth year, they're all available, or I'm available to them up to a year after they, they leave here, at, you know, at which point a good portion of, of what I'm trying to work with them on is, okay, well, how do you find a financial advisor that's not me? out there in the real world? And and how do you make sure you don't get swindled or pay for services that you don't need? And so we talk about fee-only models and that kind of stuff as well. So that's kind of how my role exists. You know, NC State just really wanted to model um, Colorado State, I believe is the first vet school that had something like this set up. So they were working with Colorado State to understand what their model was, and then they just kind of tweaked it a little bit to what they wanted here. And Dr. Amy Snyder is, uh, she runs the business selectives, and she's also one of our GP vets in our in our clinic on campus here um, that the fourth years work with. And uh, so she kind of spearheaded filling this role, right, opening it and then filling it. So I work very closely with her. We have our own podcast that talks about, you know, kind of veterinary success, uh, and we partner with our career services counselor to do that. So again, we're trying to look at it from all the different perspectives to, to basically fill this need. 
And like I said earlier, there's absolutely a thirst for it. It's just a matter of what what time do these students have to get in front of us? And so that's why we try to create as many different modes of communication, right? I send out email newsletters. I'm, I'm in front of them in classes, uh, obviously the one-on-one, the podcast. So we're trying to tackle it from as many different perspectives as possible. Yeah. I, again, biased as I may be, I love it. I think it's, it's a great role and I think it would be incredible and it'd be so hard to get this data, but to kind of follow someone that has gone through NC State, had that initial conversation and, and planning work and, and uh, maybe that baseline understanding of at least knowing what questions to ask or how to think about some of the personal finance pieces and getting things in order as they're leaving to be set up for success versus someone going to a university that doesn't have that and following them throughout their life. And again, you need such a large sample size to make anything worthwhile. It would take so long, but I would wager to guess that there would be a tremendous benefit to having that information early on to just prevent some of the things that are so like, oh, I wish I would have known that because there's a number of people that I've talked to that are older and they're like, man, I wish I would have known that when I was 35 or I wish I would know that when I was 30 or, you know, you get that statement made a lot where people have kind of learned through making mistakes. And those are things that stick with them where if you can try to educate them on, hey, don't do this or if this ever comes up, ask these type of questions to ensure and make sure that you don't do something you'll regret. So again, I think that's a wonderful overview. And I appreciate you sharing that. One other kind of tangential question that I wanted to come back to is employment contracts. And Mm -hmm. I know that you mentioned it was either dialogue we had prior or through an email or or something I saw. That's something that you do. What what have you been seeing from a a trend with employment contracts, you know, the landscape for new grads, anything that you want to share there? And maybe that's kind of outside what you're doing day to day. Um, So, so between uh, between Dr. Snyder and Amanda Bates, who's the career services director, and myself, we you know we do see a lot of different employment contracts, and then we our students, if 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 they went to to NC State for their their actual DVM and they're not one of the offshores, they have access to our student legal um, services on main campus to review the actual contract from a legal's perspective. So we do encourage them, like, hey, come see us. We'll look at it from each of our different lenses. We'll get it in front of the legal team to help point out, you know, are there any red herrings? Is there anything that, that we should really get changed? Because let's be honest, a lot of the veterinary community, um, they don't have like a robust HR department that kind of builds out these employment contracts um, adequately often. So, and, and then obviously there's a state by state basis as well, right? North Carolina is an at-will employment state. So if you sign a two-year contract, that's not really a two-year contract. They're basically giving you, you know, it's, it's at will. So, so they could let you go and then you're sunk, right? It doesn't matter that they gave you, they put two years into your contract. It's an at will state. So helping students understand that, but also helping employers understand um, what they should and shouldn't be doing. So I'm working with a lot of our employers on, I'm, I'm a huge advocate for trying to get away from this, like salary is the most important number when it comes to this stuff. And I am seeing some traction. A lot of employers, even the smaller employers, are are interested in investigating um, at least simple IRA plans, uh, if not, you know, four hundred one ks, depending on how large the the practice is. I'm a huge advocate for them providing employer sponsored um, healthcare, CE credit, 
that kind of stuff, time off, flexible scheduling, helping to understand like, hey, these are these are what your new associate vets are wanting, right? They want work-life balance. They want kind of a holistic approach. And many of them are willing to take a potentially lower salary if it means they're not forking over five, six, seven, eight hundred dollar a month premiums in medical insurance or health insurance on the on the marketplace. So we're seeing that. I'm seeing a big trend in employers really interested in helping with the student loan situation. And so they're willing to to put some sort of a stipend into the employment compensation to assist with the student loan situation. But the challenge there is if if a lot of our vet students are going to be on an income-driven repayment plan, and so some sort of a stipend, which is taxable income, doesn't necessarily help them make those loan payments. It might be a more beneficial thing if you were to put that little bit of extra cash towards some sort of retirement matching, right? And and that way they're not taxed on it up front and you know they still feel like you're helping them out because it's they might not have the cash flow to be able to save that much more in retirement. So I'm trying to encourage employers and and our grads and and, and students to look beyond the low-hanging fruit with this stuff. And try to think about more the long-term implications of what they're trying to do, what's sustainable, what's not, and what's actually making the impact that they're trying to have. Yeah, the the student loan stipend piece and your explanation for why that may not make the most sense is is a great point where people I've had conversations where people are asking, you know, who who will do this, who will help me pay these off? And it's like, well, that might actually not be the the best case scenario. And thinking about hidden benefits, healthcare, matching, retire, all those other things. It's hard to to see that. I remember my parents, my first job talking about, hey, you don't realize how good of healthcare benefits you have because you're not paying out as much. And that's a huge hidden benefit. So make sure you appreciate that. It's like, oh, oh yeah, I actually don't know because I'm just looking at what is my take home going to be? Like you have to, you have to think about everything from a whole picture. So I think that's a, a great overview and explanation on looking at employment contracts. Do you see flexibility in being able to go back and say, you know what? we've reviewed this. There's some things here that we don't think are fair or we want to have adjusted. And again, I know that's going to be different depending on whether it's a large corporate entity, whether it's a smaller private practice. Mm -hmm. Do you see the flexibility? Um, I know Ven just put out an article somewhat recently talking about the the industry and the demand for associate veterinarians and how many job offers. And it, it seems like right now it's fairly robust from having multiple offers and opportunities out there for someone that's coming out of school. Yeah. So um, to your point, right, the the larger corporate entities, there's almost never going to be flexibility there. But that being said, with the larger corporate entities, often they have the best they have the best benefits package, right? So they don't really need to be super flexible because they know their offering is typically head and shoulders above their peers, particularly the mom and pop type, you know, small practices. So I, I don't see a ton of flexibility there. There is some flexibility with the smaller, the smaller entities, but the challenge there is, is helping them to understand like some of this stuff you can write off as a corporate benefit, right? And like understanding it from the business owner's perspective. And that's where I really wish a lot of business owners that are DVMs would hand off the management of their practice to an actual, you know, an MBA, a business type person with experience running small businesses that can help them see this kind of stuff. I don't really have, you know, a horse in that race. It would just be nice, right? 
um, instead of, well, this is the way it's been done for the last 20 years. Well, you know, the economy is different. The marketplace is different. Veterinary unemployment is, I think, at it's 0.8% right now in the industry. It's, it's ridiculously, absurdly low, which means that if you don't have the most competitive stuff, those new associate vets will find someone that does, and they will take that job. I've seen it. I've talked them through it because I'm going to sit there and say, well, mathematically, here's the right answer for you. I can't speak to the mentorship pieces. I can't speak to some of the more intangible aspects of working for one place over the other. But I do look at it from a numbers perspective and I, I let them know like, hey, if you really, really love this practice, that's fine. That's that's your decision. But here's the difference in comp, right? Here's the difference in your out-of-pocket costs. Here's the difference in your work-life balance. And I give them those tools and they make the decision based on whatever their priorities are. I appreciate that. And again, I think anyone listening, that's great advice. If you're at a, a university setting or you're a, a young veterinarian looking at you know, various different employment contracts. There's a lot of nuggets in there to to take out and think through and maybe ask someone close to you to, to help review that or or just sit down with a different lens to go through it. So I want to transition a little bit because we mentioned, you know, the financial services industry and kind of the reasons maybe why you switched and, and some of the changes personally of why you wanted to make adjustments. And you talked about fee only and fiduciary. And I know a lot of those terms get thrown around a lot. And most veterinarians probably don't understand the differences, but when you look out at the the world of financial services, what are your thoughts about the state of the industry? Yeah, I guess go with with that as your kind of lead in. You take it wherever you want to go from there. <laughs> yeah, so I, I still feel like the financial services industry is essential. It's being minimized in some ways due to robo advisors or you know, uh, blogs, that kind of stuff. But for me, there's, there's zero substitute. There's no substitute whatsoever for sitting down face to face with someone that you trust and that knows your situation and is on the same side of the table and helps you to achieve those goals together, right? There is no substitute for that. I think it'll be especially important as more and more boomers are retiring every day. And not only that, but we know that there's a massive wealth transfer that's going to happen here in the next decade or two. And now we're going to have woefully inadequately educated Gen Xers and millennials who don't know personal finance because the financial service industry doesn't really pay attention to them until they have a net worth of significant you know, portions. We're going to be, a lot of people are going to make big mistakes if they don't prepare for that wealth transfer or for buying that practice and then making it successful or, you know, what have you. So that's why I'm a big, big believer in the, in the fee only model. I've never personally been in the fee only model, but you know, I, I appreciate what advisors like you in the fee only model do. And it's, it's an a la carte service, right? It's a, Hey, what do you want to know? Let's accomplish that goal together. Here's what it'll cost. And there's not any of these hanging chads or strings attached necessarily. It's, you know, again, we're on the same side of the table. So I think that that style of the financial services industry is absolutely essential. I'm a big believer in, you know, asset managers, investment advisors necessarily, especially for young professionals, aren't, aren't necessary, right? It's very hard for them to justify their costs. And I and I, I say that having worked for one of the largest discount brokers in in the world, it, it was extremely difficult for me to justify my costs or or you know the cost that it would take 
for a client to use our services when in all reality that 25 or 35 year old um, would have been probably just as well off with a total market index fund or something like that for at least the next decade or two right and then once they accumulate massive net worth um, then it makes a lot of sense for them to get some professional help with their investments but for the majority of people when they're in the accumulation phase, they don't really need investment help. They just need someone to talk them off the ledge when things get bad with the market and they want to sell. That's really the value for from an investment perspective. But when you look at you know insurance coverage and estate planning and tax planning, that's truly where the financial services industry can shine. I am one of a number of people in, in this kind of academic world that does financial planning, who are trying to advocate to the CFP board to include student loan repayment uh, planning as a critical piece of their curriculum, because it's not right now. And that's another observation that I share with my students is like, hey, don't necessarily take your parents or their financial advisor or CNBC headlines as you know, appropriate advice for you because most of these entities know nothing about modern student loan repayment options. You know, I, I consistently get people talking about the Dave Ramsey, Susie Orman method of way, way of doing things because that is a really good way for traditional debt repayment. But when you've got the different layers of student loan repayment, different strategies, different life situations, are you doing... Are you going to do an internship and residency for a couple of years before you make six figures? Like there's not a silver bullet to this stuff. So there, there are definitely some strides that the financial services community can make to be better. I still think they're essential even in their current state, but I also urge consumers to be cognizant and cautious about which services they actually decide to employ. And that's my take. <laughs> yeah, no, fascinating. And and again, you, you've seen it from a, a different angle and you also don't have a horse in the race right. where you can say, I actually know this stuff. I've seen it, but this is my opinion on it. Where as someone like Dan or myself, again, we still have an opinion. I think we align with everything or most everything that you would say, but it's still coming differently from our perspective because we still have a business that runs and a business that has to generate revenue to make sure that we stay in business, right? So there is certainly that natural conflict of, hey, we still get paid for what we do, where you are purely, this is just what I think. So I, I wanted to get your opinion there and to follow up. And I think you may have answered it, but I don't want to say yes for sure and assume that. The, the one piece of advice from a financial perspective you wish every consumer, whether they're veterinarian or not, wish they knew from the personal finance side. Yeah. Um, I, so, so one, one last point on, on the last topic. And, and I try to stress to the students as well as the, cause sometimes I get staff and faculty come see me too, even though that's part of, it's not part of my mandate necessarily. Again, I'm all about helping the community. And so I'm happy to sit and, and chat with them. And a big message that I'm trying to get across is like, Hey, these, these financial professionals, right? Like they have families to feed too their time and expertise is worth something. So like, don't expect to just get free advice, right? How often is the free stuff the most valuable? And, and trying to put that lens on it, right? Would you provide free veterinary services all the time just because? And the answer is almost always no, 
right? But to your question on you know, piece of advice, every consumer knew about personal finance. I like to harp on the fact that nobody's nobody's financial plan is always and forever going to be perfect. Life changes, situations change. You have you have more kids, or you get married, or divorced, or you change your house, or you change your job, or you know a family member gets sick. Like there's so many variables in life. You're never going to have a perfect financial plan because once you put it in place, something's going to change the next day. But again, personal finance is about behaviors and habits and building this these good habits just like study habits right just like you know being able to work on your communication with your with your significant other those types of things it's it's a labor of love and and so don't expect to just kind of set it and forget it it's something that you constantly need to be reevaluating and and even in my situation right my my wife and I we don't have a perfect financial plan but you know we're we're continually working at it and and we're getting there and you know the best I hope I think probably anybody can do is probably a 95% kind of uh, success rate, right? I don't think anybody's going to get to 100%. I bet Warren Buffett, right? His estate plan has probably got some holes in it as well. So even, you know, the ultra, ultra high net worth still probably have problems with their financial plan. So I guess that would be probably what I say is it's something to strive for, but you'll probably never achieve the perfect financial plan. Yeah, I always joke, you know, it's something that's certainly living, breathing is going to adjust and change for all the reasons that you mentioned in the days of, hey, here's this binder of 80 pages and you're set, here's your plan, you know, go execute it. It's like having a plan is great, but if you don't follow through and and make the changes or or update the things that you need to or, or, or do this or that, it's really worthless. Like that to me is not the reason and the end all be all. I think that planning process and going through that and helping get to the changes, that's what people want. They don't necessarily want a big plan. No one wakes up and says, you know what? I can't wait to go talk to to Andrew and Isaiah. I really need just a real big 80-page financial plan. That's what my life needs and I'll be good. Like that doesn't happen. Exactly. They want a relationship, right? They want someone that understands what they're trying to do, what they're trying to accomplish, where they come from, their values and what's important to them. And they don't necessarily need to know the nitty gritty in most cases, right? They don't want to know the nitty gritty. That's what you're there for. But it's that relationship and that communication that's that's vital for them. I mean, I, I, I'll i share you know quick anecdote, right? Uh, the SECURE Act is getting through Congress and um, it's got some major changes for retirement planning and estate planning. And so I sent a quick article to my parents and my in-laws last night saying, hey, I know you all got financial planners. That's great. You know, just like a doctor, we don't like to work to operate on family. And and so I just wanted to say like, hey, there's some changes that are going through Congress. You might want to meet with your financial planner, even though both of those couples are, are retired now and they've kind of got most of their pieces in place. This might have changed something, right? And And so it's just a matter of, hey, you know, I have that relationship with them where I can just I'm not in charge of the numbers. I'm just like, a, hey, you know, if they haven't reached out to you, maybe this is something to, to um, you know, spur the next conversation. And then again, to your point, it's a living, breathing thing. We don't know what Congress is going to do. We don't know what the president's going to do. We don't know what the state governments are going to do. And then obviously there's the human element of your family too that that um, impacts things. Yeah, I think that's great. And, and the whole family dynamics, we could have a whole conversation around talking to, to family about money and, and how difficult a lot of those conversations can be and how awkward. And, and it's just, that's been something that I've tried to 
stay away from just from lessons learned. And it's like, Hey, I'll have those conversations when those people are ready. But yeah, it definitely changes the dynamics of things um, when you start mixing the two. One thing I wanted to ask you just from a financial perspective, is there a, a story or something that you're like, you know what, this is a mistake that I made. I learned a lot from it. And, you know, I, can you share something like that? Or do you have anything that's top of mind that you're like, mm, that's something I wish I would have known not to do? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So um, I, I share this with my students as well. I, I try to I try to make as much of, of what I teach relatable as possible. So I share personal stories because I find that that, that seems to speak to them. Uh, I'm not just, you know, reiterating some jargon. But anyway, so when I got off active duty Navy, while you're on active duty, a certain portion of your quote unquote income, right, is 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 considered an allowance, right? There's a basic allowance for housing. There's a basic allowance for sustenance. And that's tax free, which a lot of service members appreciate, but they don't necessarily understand the impact um, of that. So I got off active duty. I started my first civilian job. And I was making a larger salary, but all of it was subject to taxes. And this was before I'd gotten really into the industry. So I I didn't obviously know what I I know now. And so I made financial decisions like, you know, lease payments um, and other obligations financially that I ended up not necessarily being able to handle because I hadn't done the appropriate calculations on after-tax take-home pay, right? And understanding what that meant for my bank, uh, my bank account, and my cash flow. So, it's the the one and only time I have actually asked my parents for for help financially. I got five hundred dollar loan one time, and it was the most humiliating experience to me because I started in the financial industry, right? And I was like, why am I asking for money if I'm in this industry? Like, I should be better than this. So, um, moral of the story is right. Just doing a little bit more homework up front could have prevented that. And and those are some of the types of things that I'm trying to get across to the people that I'm working with is not just taking that number at face value, but okay, what are you walking away with after all is said and done? And then let's talk about your, your retirement contributions. What does that mean to your after-tax income? And that's just a, a quick personal story, right? You know, a small little loan, generally insignificant over, over somebody's lifetime, but it really stuck with me because it easily could have been avoided if I'd just known that much more and I didn't. Um, and so that's been kind of something that I, I keep in the back of my mind as like, Hey, I didn't always know what I know now. I need to try to put myself in that mindset again to help me as an educator, assist other people in knowing maybe what, what they don't know that they should know. Yeah. Thank you for the, the honest and open story. Cause yeah, there's times where those lessons learned are, are better to be learned young oh, yeah. or you're, you're older. And, and one of those things that, yeah, will absolutely stay with you for a while, but I appreciate you sharing that story. That's, that's a really good story. And, and one that, yeah, I'm sure was difficult at the time to go through. And, and when we were like, well, how did I get here? And for the record, I did pay it back. Any topic that you really want to either address it's an open mic that maybe i failed to ask about that you know is maybe related to the conversation we've had today outside of the conversation but you think is valuable to anyone that listens to this that's within the the veterinary medicine community I, i think it's it's valuable to understand that the dialogue is open right there the the academic institutions um, are are open to suggestions, right? But but there are there are budgetary limits to what they can do. 
I often say there's there's about four different perspectives. There's four different stakeholders at the table here. There's there's academia. Um, there's there's the industry, right? The actual employers. There's the students, and whoever might be on their side of the table, mentors or family or other advisors. Um, there's there's four stakeholders, and if all four aren't on the same page, then we're not going to get going, we're not going to have the progress that we want in the right direction. I see academic institutions taking steps that they need to through the AAVMC, through the AVMA Economic Summit. I see progress in that direction. Students are definitely taking those steps as well, right? By working part-time while they're in school, applying for more scholarships, working really, really hard to, to make sure that they're keeping their budget and their student loan debt as low as possible. Um, I, I'd say, you know, more often than not, they're they're very diligent about that. Where I see a lot of opportunity in the industry, uh, or in the community rather, to make massive strides here is industry. And and the more employers that can get on board with this, the more heavy hitters that can get on board with some of the initiatives, these personal finance initiatives to improve the overall quality of the medicine that's being practiced because the humans that are involved are healthier and happier, I think that's ultimately going to see massive payoffs throughout the industry. But, you know, I'm, I work with plenty of industry partners on, you know, my perspectives on things, what I think would be beneficial, you know, so, so that's kind of where I see a huge opportunity, especially when you got these big players like Mars who have dollars to put behind something like this. And, and so I'd love to see something, you know, more nationally as well as industry get behind this kind of stuff, because I think academic institutions, students and their families are all aware, just need some sort of direction and focus. And, and obviously, you know, it doesn't hurt if we've got some financial backing. Fascinating. Yeah, that's a great overview of some thoughts. And your perspective is one that, that I certainly am intrigued by just given the nature of where you see the industry and, and so much of the the impact of the different decisions coming from from academia, but also having that financial background for me is a very unique approach and why I was so excited to have the conversation today and, and learn a little bit more since we've we've had conversations outside of this. But yeah, I appreciate that that feedback and thought. And I think there's a lot of value there for those to think about. Yeah. And and I think like personal finance, right? I don't think we're ever going to get to a hundred percent satisfactory, you know, fantastic solution, but it's, it's in the effort, right? It's how close can we get to perfection uh, where everybody's happy and profitable and content and, you know, good medicine is being practiced while everyone's being taken care of. I think that's what we should be striving for. I just don't necessarily see everybody pulling in the same direction that way right now. Yeah, and I don't know if you've ever read um, Atomic Habits by James Clear. It's a great book. I'd recommend it for a lot of different people, but it talks about the the power of just, you know, small 1% changes over time and just like investing, right? The compounding effect of, of people all working together, trying to accomplish the same things that can drastically change the, the landscape of veterinary medicine to address, you know, mental health, to address the, the work-life balance, to address the compensation, not just from the vet side, but the vet tech. Like there's all these other issues and challenges but it's like, you know what, you have a community of awesome, awesome individuals that I've been so excited to work with and partner with on a number of different things where you can make some really cool changes and strides to, to make, you know, 2020 and beyond 
such a different industry than what it's been in the past. Absolutely. Yeah. And and whether they're on board with it or not, like technology is going to disrupt some of that. And, you know, you got to embrace that change, adapt it. And if you're on board with it, then you can kind of shape what it looks like instead of you know being the old curmudgeon person who doesn't like anything different. Yeah. I love that vocab. <laughs> That's great. Um, as we transition to the end and, and think about the podcast is based around success. And I know success can be one of those words that's really hard to define as, as Andrew Rotz, as the, the person with balance, that, that is a person that works in the reserves that also works at NC state. That's also a husband and a father. What does success look like personally and professionally for you? So challenging question. And it's sometimes hard to answer that without seeming, you know, either overconfident or there's a bunch of hubris or something like that. But I would say what, what I try to keep in focus is, is like, what is my legacy going to be? Um, I want to be known as, as a great father, as a great husband, as a professional individual that was easily able to relate with and help students. And, and so that's tr- what I try to keep in mind is just kind of like, what is that legacy? Now, Hopefully that legacy ends up being very good. Hopefully it's it's already on its on its way that way, um, that direction. But really, my idea is to try to be able to help help my family, help my community, help my country, and provide positive inputs in each of those. Uh, more positive than negative, right? I, I try to stay away from the negative, but uh, sometimes you know you just gotta you gotta give bad news sometimes. So I guess that I guess that's my answer is is just trying to develop a, a, a solid legacy of, of, you know, being a good, good human being, a good professional, a good father, a good husband. I love it. Um, I think leaving a legacy and, and trying to make sure that you can have people that, that you love and care about, be proud of what you're doing and, and making an impact and difference in, in the world. Uh, again, you and I might not be able to make a huge impact, but we can certainly make a, a big impact with the people that we know. So if people are interested in, in talking more about, you know, what you're doing, what's going on at NC State, anything, where would you direct them or how can they connect with you to, to interact? Yeah. So, so if you just type in, you know, in, in the Google machine, right. NCSU CVM personal finance, you'll get my little page on our website. Uh, my email address is a R O T Z at ncsu.edu. Feel free to shoot me an email. Um, I'm happy to chat. I'm happy to share my perspectives. I'm also happy to solicit feedback and, and understand what, people out there in, in the industry that might be listening to this think um, other academic institutions like I'm in my opinion this is all hands on deck everyone needs to be pulling in the same direction so I'm happy to do my part to, to help facilitate that perfect Andrew thank you so much for joining me today thanks Isaiah I appreciate the time thanks for listening to today's show the comments made on today's show should not be taken as investment tax or legal advice all comments are for educational purposes only you should talk to your professional team before implementing anything Isaiah is the founder of ID financial planning and wealth management Isaiah is a registered investment advisor in the state of Indiana the biggest compliment you can give is to share this podcast with a friend reviews help the show get found and Apple podcast is a platform that is predominantly how people listen to the show if you have three minutes love the show head over to Apple Podcasts and give us an honest review and rating that'll help more people find the show for all of today's links and information, head over to the veterinariansuccesspodcast.com. There you can also subscribe via your favorite podcast platform so you won't miss another episode. Finally, if you'd like more information and insights and the ability to have your voice heard, please consider joining the private podcast Facebook group. You can search for the Veterinarian Success Podcast on Facebook or head over to the veterinariansuccesspodcast.com. Scroll down to the about your host and click on the Facebook icon. Then I can approve you, let you into the group, and would love to hear from you there. Thanks for listening, and I'll be talking again to you soon.